So it's my pleasure to introduce Jody Lahendro. Jody's been a historic preservation architect in UVA's facilities, facilities planning and construction department for more than nine years, managing 15. Whoa. You got to update this 15 years. My apologies. <laughs> That's right. I've known you for almost nine, actually. Okay, so, so my apologies. Managing work on the university's more than 100 designated historic buildings, including the Academical Village. Previously, he had his own architectural practice in Richmond for 18 years, specializing in historic preservation, restoration, and adaptive reuse. He also served as preservation architect for the Taliesin? No. Taliesin, my apologies on that, Preservation Commission as it began its charge to preserve Frank Lloyd Wright's home in Spring Green, Wisconsin. He's literally just walked over here. Ten minutes ago, he was doing a tour of the rotunda, so we're lucky to have him. Please help, help me welcome Jody Lahendro. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Um, so... I'm going to be talking about the work that we've done, we, the historic preservation team, has done here and continue to do here at the uh, university since the rotunda. Um, you got the volume control going on? Yeah, you might want to I'm a rookie. <laughs> Is that all right? Okay? Okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about the projects we've been doing after the rotunda. You remember that one. I've given that talk here several times. Um, so, uh, but before I leave the rotunda, um, about six, seven months ago, uh, the university received the wonderful news that the rotunda project was one of the nine uh, recognized best projects in the world uh, this past year. Um, and so the rotunda is you know, it's a great honor uh, for the university to get to get that recognition. And John G. Waite Associates were the architects, and they'll be out in Las Vegas at the National Convent Con Conference next week to receive the uh, the award uh, with the university. Um, so the, some of the projects, I'm, I'm going to hit on several that we've been working on, um, about 11 projects. Uh, we work on more than this, uh, but these are some of the highlights I'd like to, to go through. Um, and the first thing I, I, I should say is um, we've got 1,500 people in facilities planning and construction working on all our buildings. What gives the historic preservationist authority to step in and say it has to be done this way? Um, what does give us that authority is the historic preservation framework plan that was uh, completed in 2007. And in this plan, um, it, it looks, it surveys all the buildings at the university, identifies those that have historic significance. Um, and we've identified over 120 of them. And then it, they have been graded as from fundamental, uh, the Jeffersonian buildings for the most part, to contributing and not contributing, uh, and four different categories of importance. Um, and so this information is out there to all our facilities management people, all the university staff people, um, so that they know that when they, want, they plan to do something to a building, they need to look here to see what kind of importance it has. And if it is important, um, we have this authorization uh, to step in. 
um, for our stewardship of the buildings, we uh, tape, make sure that we um, um, review any projects that proposed for historic buildings to make sure they're protecting the historic fabric. Um, we also take care of the care and maintenance of the buildings, uh, working with our tradespeople. Uh, we maintain uh, tradespeople that are experienced with historic properties. Um, it takes a certain kind, a certain skill level to be able to work on the historic buildings. Uh, unique, I should say. Um, and then the characteristics for that historic building, which are identified in the survey um, uh, framework plan, they must be protected uh, as a result of any work. And then in project planning, we do something similar. We're part of the team, the steering committee team, that is making uh, changes to a building that's historic uh, or adding on to it. Um, and, uh, and, and our RFPs, uh, for requests for proposals to architects and contractors have to indicate that it is a historic building and they require experienced professionals to work on it. Um, and who is we? Um, the historic preservation team, uh, when I came here, um, the, uh, Murray Howard was the one who really started historic preservation awareness here. Uh, he was here from 82 to 2002. He retired. The university spent about three years determining how to do historic preservation differently. Uh, and they ended up hiring th uh, three preservationists, myself in, historic, in, in the um, facilities planning and construction division. Uh, and then Brian Hogg is the senior preservation planner in the university architect's office. And that way we have both sides covered, the planning part of, of projects and the implementation part of projects. Mark Cutney was the third, a conservator, and the three of us together work very closely on all aspects of, of a project uh, that, that uh, involves a historic building. Uh, other members of the team include, um, uh, here we go, uh, Sarita Herman, she's a project uh, manager in, uh, um, in my team. Uh, Mark Cutney here, he's a con the conservator. James Zemer likes to get dirty, um, and he is a project manager on my team. Henry Hull's a project uh, coordinator in, uh, on our, our team. Um, and then our tradespeople. Um, after a few years being here, facilities management operations that's decided that they needed to have a group, a core group of tradespeople who were assigned to the Jeffersonian buildings uh, in center, central grounds. And as a result, uh, the preservation team, we started working with our tradespeople, uh, going through the preservation um, uh, principles, uh, making sure that as, as we hired new tradespeople, we found those that had experience with historic preservationists. We have some of the best historic mason, preservation masons uh, in the country uh, working at the university uh, as a result. And um, so we have carpenters, masons, painters, plasters, um, all within the central grounds group. And we meet together once every two weeks to go over work that we're doing together. And trust me, um, we, the preservation team professionals, learn more from our tradespeople than they do from us. Um, it's a great relationship, uh, and, and it shows in the work that happens to the buildings. Um, and our team at Facilities Planning Construction, 
We've, we, this is the last week's list. We manage anywhere from 25 to 35 projects at a time, uh, all different levels, from capital projects uh, down to putting a water fountain in behind the west lawn, because um, all of them involve a historic building. And you can do as much damage drilling a hole through a, a Jeffersonian wall um, as you can with uh, the rotunda uh, uh, new plan that uh, could be devised. So they're all important. Um, so starting looking at the projects themselves, um, this is one that we completed just a couple of years ago. Uh, it's at Pavilion 3. Um, uh, and this is, of course, the, the uh, bow, uh uh, etching lithograph that after the addition to the rotunda was put on in, in 1854 by Robert Mills. Um, but Pavilion 3, you can see here, and you can see that it had that has a little bit of a parapet on it. Um, we had a project to, uh, it was turning over from uh, a Pavilion residence, and so we were given the, the building for about six months uh, to make improvements to the kitchens, bathrooms, inside. But also, we took this uh, uh, opportunity to restore the, par the parapet that was on the building originally. And here's one of those rare photo times that we have a photograph of the parapet on the building. Um, we have at least six of the pavilions had parapets on top of it, uh, a very classical device that Jefferson loved. Um, they were all gone by the end of the 19th century because being exposed wood, they were uh, uh, the first things to rot off the building, and the university was struggling for money for most of the 19th century. Um, so they weren't replaced. But we did have um, the Jefferson's drawing of it, which doesn't mean it was built this way, we, which we know. Um, and, but we had photographic evidence, uh, even better. And this is how it looked when we uh, began our work. Um, and our architect, Misek Cohen Wilson Baker, they took that photograph and then used computer rendering uh, and, and, and diagrams to determine the height of that, uh, ra that parapet. Um, and then did a rendering of it uh, going back onto the building um, and at the same time, we took off the Portland cement uh, stucco uh, off the column shafts and put back a lime stucco. And I'll talk more about that uh, in a little bit. Um, but you can see here uh, the framework for the railing going uh, up. Um, and we found the original Jeffersonian tin plate uh, shingle roof uh, here with the Philadelphia gutter. Um, that had been overlaid with a, uh, uh, a, a, an additional layer of roofing uh, in the uh, mid-19th century. Um, and we, of course, kept all that and still put the overlay back so as to preserve it. Um, and we have turned the pavilion from uh, what it was uh, in 2016 to what it is now, 2017, with the parapet. And it adds a great deal of character to the building. Uh, we also have the lime, the lime mortar uh, rendering on the column shafts. We uh, also clean the original Corinthian capitals. Uh, Carrera Marble used a laser cleaning system, a conservator out of DC, came down and did it. 
Uh, we used the same system at Pavilion 2 to clean those ionic uh, capitals. Um, and, uh, and it's beautiful, in my opinion. Um, and so the, the West Lawn Roof and Railing Restoration, this is another project I wanted to talk about. Um, this, we have done um, two sections restoring the Jeffersonian flat roofs that used to be over all the dorm rooms um, between the pavilions and the ranges. One day we'll get to the ranges. But between the pavilions, all these had flat roofs uh, to, to them. And we have done two sections. Actually, we just finished this third section between uh, three and five. And next summer, we'll be doing this, the last section on the west side between one and three. Um, and this is, um, many people come to the lawn and say, oh, it's just like it used to be in Jefferson's time. Um, but there are subtle changes that have been made over time. The uh, railings along the lawn um, were actually one of the first things to go. In the late 1830s, they rotted. Uh, they were replaced by a, a contractor named Spooner and uh, replaced with cast iron railings. Um, and they were there until 1976. Uh, and then for the Queen's visit, Freddie Nichol designed um, the Chinese Chippendale railings um, that uh, were put in at that time. Um, these are deteriorating terribly. Um, we knew we had to do something with those. But at, in, also in the late 1830s, the flat roofs were taken off of the, uh, the dorm rooms themselves, and a gabled slate roof was put on them only because, of course, Jefferson's flat roof system leaked like a sieve. And they had to do something about it. The, 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 they get picky when you live on, in a room that has a leaking roof. So um, we wanted to put back that flat roof system to restore the Jeffersonian period. Look also at what happened as a result of taking that uh, flat roof off. The, uh, railing systems do not align with the balconies. Now, that sometimes happens when there's the terrace drop. Uh, we have three terraces on the lawn. But Jefferson was a classicist. Um, and you can see even in the Tanner etching um, how the railings are aligned with the balconies. Um, also, you'll notice in this how the columns don't align with the uh, posts of the railing above. They are very uh, un, un, um, uh, uncoordinated. Um, so we hired Misa Cohen, Wilson Baker. They actually found an incredible amount of evidence to prove what the original railings were. Um, and this shows you what happened to that flat roof system when they came in in the late 1830s and put uh, the gable roof over it. They kept the flat roofs underneath. Um, and. Um, and it's fascinating to get into the attics and be able to crawl along and over top of the, uh, the, the serrated roof systems. Um, this was a system Jefferson uh, created of collecting water in these troughs, taking the water off to gutters at both sides of the flat roof, and then uh, uh, shedding it away from the building, and then putting uh, boards on top of the ridges 
uh, with a little bit of gap between them to allow the rain to go through the boards to the, the uh, collection system below. Um, so this shows you the before condition um, of the misalignment uh, that happened. We, uh, the, the architects found indeed that they were aligned. In fact, they had um, these, the, the posts were actually panels the same width as the emphasis of the uh, column shaft uh, below. Um, and this is what a classicist would do. And Jefferson was the, the, was the classicist, the, the ultimate classicist. And this shows you before how you had this walkway system here and the slate roof from the late 1830s and how it looks today. Um, and it makes an extraordinary uh, difference. Uh, I think just architecturally, um, in that before, as you walked from pavilion to pavilion, your orientation was always to the lawn. Now you get up there and you see both the gardens and the lawn at the same time, and it just changes your whole perspective. And this was an incredibly important um, connection, uh, communication level, because it connected the pavilions together. Uh, all the pavilions had their fanciest, the nicest, most ornamented room on the second floor. It was the parlor, and it was for greeting other faculty members, other faculty family. Um, so they, we had this layer of communication and visitation uh, for, among the faculty members um, and families, and then the students, of course, uh, in the below in the colonnades. Uh, uh, a really amaz amazing system uh, that was created. Um, and we put back the flat ceiling that we knew was there. Uh, we even, our plasters have gotten to the point where they use even the wood lath of the original and mix uh, goat hair in with the lime plaster to have the original system. Um, and they believe it works better as a result. It, it has more give, it has more flexibility. Um, so another thing we've been working on, uh, in the academical village, we had done the paint analysis for one pavilion under a, sort of a, 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 with very limited information, and we knew that we needed to look at the historic paint colors for all of the academical village. So we, we bit off a chunk that was just the lawn, uh, the, the, those buildings facing the lawn, um, and we wanted to do a complete analysis of all those uh, structures. And we hired Susan Buck, uh, a paint analyst out of Colonial Williamsburg. Um, she worked, uh, this has been, uh, this was a year-long project. She collected over 150 samples from all around the rooms facing the lawn. Um, and in a, in a, during this process, we discovered uh, at Pavilion 7, uh, you can't see it very well here, but there's a stucco render on the uh, uh, the blank, the walls uh, above the arches that is scored to look like stone, ashlar stone blocks that are laid on top of each other. And it's a decorative device, um, and we hope one day to be able to restore that. But that was a discovery we didn't expect. Um, 
And then this shows you the kind of deterioration that the grain, paint grained doors uh, was going through. This was a panel discovered in the attic of Pavilion 10 used as a, a wood uh, uh, infill in the floor, uh, nailed down. It was just salvaged and, and used. Um, and it comes from uh, one of the panels in a, uh, a door uh, for uh, entering the pavilion. And this became a very important piece of evidence that we used to then um, recreate those uh, doors. This is uh, John Canning's uh, specialist with John Canning. He studied in France for a couple years with a paint graining specialist there. Um, he came down and he has done three, he did at this time, three different doors for pavilion entrances. We found that the original actually had more brown in it than the uh, paint graining that was in place done about, uh, well, in, in 76, um, which is more mahogany looking. Um, so we made that correction, and he's back again this summer. He's going to be doing three more. And notably, not only the entrance door from the colonnade uh, level, but also the entrance doors from the, um, uh, from, the, from the Chippendale railing from the upper level, where the faculty went from room to room. Um, those were paint-grained also because they were in very important uh, entrance. You can read a building by how, where they put the decorated, decorated surfaces. Uh, one of the interesting things that Susan found um, is this is Pavilion 1 the, um, in the Metopes, uh, the sun god, uh, the Baths of Diocletian. Uh, comes from that Roman ruin um, and, and as handed down to Jefferson through uh, uh, Chambray's book. Um, and Jefferson copied that. Um, we found that the, she found that the rays and the head of the sun god had, were chrome yellow. Um, and I don't know what the Board of Visitors is going to do with that, but we'll, <laughs> we'll let them know what it was. <laughs> um, other, whenever we do projects in the Academical Village, we have a policy. You cannot stick a shovel in the ground unless an archaeologist is notified. And um, so as a result of that policy, we actually found uh, uh, several projects in the East Lawn area where the East Lawn uh, stormwater project's going on. Um, discovered a well house, a kitchen, um, and, well, I'll go through these. You know, the muse, well, I'll just go through them. Uh, so this cistern was actually discovered beneath uh, the room just south of uh, 6 uh, on the east side. Um, and we, it had been discovered um, a few years ago. Um, and we just left it alone until we had the opportunity to have the archaeologists get in. But it's in the basement underneath the dorm room, um, and we even found uh, archival uh, letters to the proctor at the time uh, from a faculty member asking, why the heck are you putting a cistern in below a room? Isn't that going to be a lot of, of moisture and, and vapor coming up through? And, and the proctor said, yeah, yeah, you're right, um, but then didn't do anything about it and went ahead and finished it. Um, and it's a really great uh, device because it has an inlet that faces towards the east, towards the alley, and we believe there was a hydrant out there that, by gravity, uh, 
uh, uh, students could go out and get water from the hydrant. Um, but it was fed through a series of underground pipes, wood pipes originally that came from a reservoir uh, uh, up on um, Observatory Hill and, and, serve it, and serve the university. And the archaeologists, Rivenna Archaeological um, Services, have done a wonderful study of the original uh, uh, supply of water to, uh, to the university. Jefferson loved putting buildings on top of mountains. The only problem with that is the water is usually in the valley below. And how do you get water to those mountains? Um, and so it's a, it's a wonderful um, uh, uh, study of uh, the different things that they tried uh, over, the, over the years and the problems they had. The typhoid that uh, was common in the early years at the university, uh, 12 students dying of typhoid. They had to shut the university down for a period in 1852, I think. Um, and that's when uh, uh, um, Varsity Hall was constructed, which was, of course, the first purpose-built university infirmary in the country. Um, and that was deliberately done because the um, administration was trying to get parents to feel good about sending their students back to the university. Um, boy, have I gotten off target. Um, so uh, this, this is uh, behind uh, Pavilion 2, uh, discovered uh, through archaeology, well, first by exca doing excavations for a project. Uh, here's a Pavilion 2, actually Pavilion 4, closer to uh, Mr. Sabato's. Um, and it's a well um, with a, what we believe to be a well house uh, structure next to it. Um, and it's all been documented. We don't know everything about it, um, but it's an early 19th century uh, feature. Um, in, at the Muse, this is a little house, house a little building um, that is uh, behind uh, uh, Pavilion uh, 3 on the east, I'm sorry, on the west side. And it's a very, very complicated building. It was actually, this is the, a, a plan of the back of Pavilion 3 and the garden here with the serpentine walls around the garden. It was actually first constructed as a, a kitchen that included part, part of the uh, garden wall here. And then later on, it was enlarged, uh, not only enlarged uh, plan-wise, adding another room, this time to the east side of that garden wall, but also another story. So you can see the kind of uh, complicated history in its brickwork. Um, we needed to put a crawl space in this building because we needed to add uh, mechanical systems and plumbing. And so, of course, we, we started to excavate beneath the floor and had the archaeologist um, come in to, to uh, look ahead of us. And uh, they discovered right away part of the serpentine wall that used to be, uh, that came up to this garden wall. Uh, it's in the crawl space now of the Muse and also found the original brick flooring from, and the Muse was constructed in 1829, so it's a very early building one of many outbuildings that were constructed by the university in the 19th century. Um, and this is a project, um, uh, part of the stormwater project, uh, in excavating down and putting in uh, waterproofing neck behind uh, uh, Hotel D, um, just to the south of Hotel D, the dorm rooms, 
uh, discovered openings, seams in the wall, implying window openings. And sure enough, below discovered a brick floor. And the fact that, the, that there were never any uh, uh, wall, foundation walls below the uh, uh, separation walls between the dorm rooms above. This was all one room. It was a storeroom that had an opening to the basement of Hotel D. Um, and it could either have been a, a, a quarters, slave quarters, or um, storage uh, space, or both. Uh, we don't know, but uh, we're discovering more uh, opportunities for, uh, and, and certainly taking advantage of our uh, uh, of this information to learn more about the enslaved uh, 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 laborers at the university. Um, the East Range Stormwater Management Project, which on the surface of it seems like that wouldn't be a historic, have anything to do with historic preservation. In actual fact, um, it has water runs from the top of the hill. As you know, the East Range has a much steeper grade than the West. And that water picks up steam uh, be after being dumped in the courtyards, um, picks up steam coming down the alley, and then settles against the back of the East Range block. Um, and we have had uh, terrible drenchings. Um, of, of the back, it it's, um, collects water against the buildings, uh, against the back side of the East Range. This, it, just inside of this wall, uh, in the uh, late 19th early, and 20th century, a uh, trench was dug for the utilities that go through all the crawl spaces of the ranges. And there's mud and standing water uh, in those trenches as a result of all this rain coming down and coming to the backside. And you can imagine what this does, and it's evident uh, once you get into the crawl spaces. It's rotting joists, uh, deteriorating the mortar in the, in the masonry walls. Um, so this project is to correct that. And in fact, uh, doing archival research, um, it's an old, pro old problem. Uh, this is 1826, the hotel keeper uh, this happens to be the keeper of Hotel B, but he says whenever it, uh, it rains heavily, the cellar floors, the, the lower floors, are covered with mud, mud and water, um, and that's where the kitchens were for most of the hotels. Um, makes it impractical at the time to cook in, and a great degree contributes to make my family sickly. Um, so it's been a historic problem that we'd like to correct, <laughs> and we are correcting with this project which uh, collects the, 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 the um, uh, stormwater uh, that is, was previously just dumped in the courtyards and allowed to run down the alley. Now we're collecting it, taking it to underground detention reservoirs, um, where it allows it to disperse at a much slower rate within the ground itself. Um, and then we're putting, we have put in gutter systems and underground piping along the alleys. Um, and then gutters periodically to pick up any uh, uh, surface water runoff. Uh, and then we have a number of gutters that we're collecting it along the road uh, behind the East Range. We have um, uh, put in waterproofing, excavated down, put in waterproofing at the backside of all the buildings here. 
um, and put in French drains to take that away. And we have another reservoir detention system out here that we're taking water to. Um, and this is the kind of condition that wall was once we first took down the, the, the grade to expose the underground um, section of the wall. Brick had no mortar. They were falling in. Um, so this is our uh, waterproof. First, we, of course, come in and we repoint all this brick uh, using lime mortar. Um, then we put a, a lime parging coat on it, which is a, a, a protects the brick against then putting this waterproofing um, on, uh, against the lime parging coating and getting a through wall flashing in uh, and then protective board and then backfill, putting a, a French drain at the bottom uh, and then putting gravel uh, drainage uh, um, material against the building to allow that water to go to the French drain. Um, this is the kind of the tension reservoirs that we put into the uh, underneath those courtyards where the uh, faculty park. Um, and so we have turned a situation like this into here. We're we, uh, also putting in gutters in uh, to control the water. So we've, we've developed a much better system um, as a result of this project. And it will be finished um, sometime this summer. Uh, it's been going on for about a year, year and a half. Um, colonnade columns restoration. You've probably noticed walking around that we've been working on the Tuscan columns on the east lawn uh, colonnade. Um, we, have, we are just now finishing up the entire east lawn. And after this year, starting next uh, year, fiscal year, uh, we'll start on the, on the west side and work uh, from the north end to the south. Um, and the reason we're doing this is because of things like this. This is a blowout um, where all of a sudden the stucco, maybe I should go backwards. These column, Tuscan columns are made with pie-shaped brick first laid up and then rendered with a, originally a lime stucco, lime render. Um, and um, that lime render originally was through body colored. So it was not coated uh, at all. The paint analysis also found that the stone bases and capitals to the Tuscan columns were, never, were not painted originally, too. Um, so, but what happens is that this lime mortar, when, in, when the maintenance is not taking care of it, it erodes away, and especially in damp areas near the bottom, um, the, during the 20th century, university staff would go in, take off the lime, and replace it with Portland cement. Problem with that is Portland cement is an incredibly hard material. And water still gets in the column, of course, and it can't get out because of the Portland cement. So it goes through freeze-thaw cycles and eventually just blows it out. Um, so this is, we're doing this to preserve our capitals, not to make them look good uh, necessarily, but to preserve them. Uh, lime mortar allows the, the moisture to, vapor to come out. It breathes. It allows that to pass through. Um, and so this was a very tedious process uh, using our own tradespeople, our own masons, coming through and with um, uh, uh, slight hammers and, 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 and modest uh, hydraulic uh, uh, hammers, taking off the Portland cement without damaging the brick, 
um, using uh, moisture boxes over a week or so of uh, moisture uh, vapor being put against the capitals to take the paint off of those stone capitals. Did the same thing with the bases. And this is a microabrasion uh, system uh, using small um, pellets of walnut um, that are softer than the brick, but they take off the, the paint, uh, latex paint, uh, the later inappropriate paints. Um, and eventually, and then we put back a lime mortar that is colored to the original color. Um, and they end up looking like this. We're going to have to go back through, though, and paint all the shafts uh, with a lime co coating, paint coating. The original parts, and the reason we have to do that is the original parts of the shaft that are still the lime uh, mortar, they've been painted over time, and that microabrasion, we can't get all of it off without destroying or damaging that lime coating. Um, so to make it a more uniform uh, color, uh, we're going through and, and coating them with a lime paint. Um, so accessibility, ADA accessibility. Of course, the university is known ever since I came here. The, uh, it was annual that the federal government will let us know, and the state government will let us know that we don't comply with ADA requirements on the lawn. We knew that. We tried different things to improve it. But we've never been able, to, we hadn't been able until recently to be able to have a, a wheelchair um, occupant be able to go from the south end of the lawn to the north end because of the terraces. Um, to, do, to go from one terrace to another, they could do that, but they'd have to go from uh, the pavilion down an alley to McCormick Road, come up another alley, and get to that next terrace level. Um, uh, not, uh, well, inappropriate. We knew uh, they had to do something. University Architect's Office studied this for a long time, hired professionals to come up with different options for how to get that handicapped access, and eventually came up with a plan that uh, provided ramps in a, uh, as inconspicuously as possible they do have brick walls, but they have open railings above that. Um, they are at uh, Pavilion 9 and Pavilion 5, um, and this is their construction. President Ryan used to be a stonemason uh, during the summers during college, so he tried his hand at uh, laying some brick. Um, and, and just as an aside, this brick is, we uh, worked out a relationship we can never find new brick to match our historic brick. And we ended up uh, working an arrangement with Colonial Williamsburg, which of course operate kilns uh, as demonstrations uh, and burn brick. Um, so we worked out an arrangement where we, we found the clay that would produce the right color for our brick and worked with them to get the mold, molds to, to produce the right size brick. And now we get our, uh, our brick from Colonial Williamsburg. It's all handmade uh, down there. Um, and you can see the result. This is uh, before uh, we had these retaining walls. And now the uh, ramps uh, are, I think, very, very well integrated into the, um, the, the, the landscape and the 
um, and become uh, and have been used effectively and often since we've been since we put them in. Uh, we're very proud of this achievement um, at the university. Um, Pavilion Eight is uh, on the east side, and as this tanner etching shows, uh, it had a, a parapet also originally and a flat roof. Jefferson's notorious flat roof, and guess what it did? Uh, <laughs> it leaked like a sieve, um, and so. We have just um, been notified that uh, we have done renovation, full renovations to 2, 9, and 10, and, went, and we had a, a partial renovation at, uh, at 3. Um, whenever the preservation team knows that there is going to be a change in occupants and we have enough uh, um, advance warning um, and we know we can get it for at least a year to be able to do work, we take advantage of that to do a full renovation of the, of the, of the pavilion. Um, so Pavilion 8, uh, President Ryan is currently living in Pavilion 8, waiting for Cars Hill to be finished, uh, which will be next winter. Um, and at that time, then we will have Pavilion 8 for about a year, year and a half. So we have started the architectural work to uh, design new systems, and to take advantage of, of uh, doing, restoring those things that we know uh, used to be there in Jefferson's time but had been changed where we can. Um, so the first thing we do is a historic structure report, which uh, does, it takes uh, six to eight months of uh, uh, in-depth examination of the building, archival research, physical research, documentation of the building, um, and, and then condition survey, and then recommendations for how to, uh, what improvements to make. Um, and uh, so for Pavilion 8, uh, we had that done. This shows it as it is today. And the uh, Nielsen drawing of what it was originally uh, with the flat roof and parapet. And sure enough, in the attic, that serrated roof system by Jefferson is still there. Um, and you can spend time, uh, we, we've spent lots of time up there. Um, but you notice the ductwork, that's going to come up here. Um, so we did, uh, the architects had done a number of probes looking for evidence of the supports for those parapets, uh, which they found. Um, also looking for evidence of what changes happened here. Originally the roof line actually stepped in just like the uh, entablature does. Um, the, just as an aside, all the Corinthian capitals, career of marble, were painted, started to be painted at some point. We don't know when. Um, and we're going to be laser cleaning those to take the paint off and get them back to career of marble as part of this project. Um, unfortunately, the roof that was put on was done so in, the, in the, the hip roof that's under now was put on in the late 1830s. Um, and then an addition was put on after that uh, in the 1870s, I think it was. And it mimicked, just followed the hip roof. We looked at a number of options for how we could get back Jefferson's original appearance with that hip roofed addition. And 
this was completely the wrong answer because it, it's a completely ahistoric uh, configuration. That back addition never did have a parapet and flat roof to it. So we studied several different options, and we had wanted to do this option here. But when we got into the architects, got into designing the systems, the mechanical electrical plumbing systems, those, those inconveniences for preservationists that we have to have now, uh, the only way we could do that was to make significant fabric changes to the top floor with soffits. And we had to put the ductwork somewhere. Um, and so what we've ended up doing is going, keeping it the, the way it is um, and, and, and uh, using that attic space for our air handling units, our ductwork, all the things that we have to have. Um, so we are proceeding uh, along that route. Um, and what, oh, an, an interesting thing though, um, Bonnie Castle was an early um, resident, I think he may have been the first resident of eight. And he actually invented a, syst a roofing system that used battens and sheet metal. And it's patented. Um, and indeed, there's evidence on the, the Pavilion 8 roof in the attic that it was put on Pavilion 8. Uh, when they, he put that uh, uh, hip roof on in the 1830s, uh, that batten system that he invented is on, was on the roof. It's not there now, but there's evidence uh, with battens and screw, early screws, uh, handmade screws holding down the battens uh, in, in the attic. Uh, so, in some way, we're, we're keeping that history. Um, the memorial, how am I doing time-wise? Just 10? Oh. Okay. Um, I'll try. Uh, the memorial to enslaved labor is, of course, not a historic building, but it is going into a very important place just east of the rotunda. This is Brooks Hall, the rotunda. It's going in the triangular field. Um, and it is a project being managed by the historic preservation team. Um, it involved a very extensive uh, public engagement with uh, the city of Charlottesville because so many of the enslaved laborers' um, descendants live still in Charlottesville. Um, and this is the design um, as it uh, is being constructed. Um, and this is the, 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 the um, re reasoning behind that the design, where the, the center of it will be a gathering place. Um, there will be a fountain, a continuous fountain, um, well, a water feature that will have a timeline of uh, enslaved labor um, in, at the university. Um, and then on the inside of the ring will be uh, names of the enslaved that we know about at the university. And then on the outside will be a, um, an image that is carved into the stone. Um, ah, uh, this is, I'm not going to do it. This is a video that you can see online um, at, that takes you into it. Um, but I, oh, I guess I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I'll let you watch it.
And that's Brooks Hall, of course, uh, in the background. And it will have this grove of trees around it. So in this outer, it's a, a, a cut stone with ridges. This is the, the water feature with the uh, timeline. And then the names of the enslaved. So I wanted to sh show you this. Um, the artist, whose name I cannot pronounce, um, is uh, actually an artist and a, um, a, a mechanical engineer. And he's devised this system. Um, doo -doo -doo. Play. Nope. Um, Excuse me. I should have tried this. Here it is. I do. I used to know how to do this. I'm trying to get this video to run. It's a video. Um, There it goes. Did you see the eyes come out of nowhere? Yeah. It's a remarkable. And he, uh, he's using, um, I forget Mrs. Gibbons' first name, but the Gibbons uh, lady that the Gibbons dormitory is named after, there's a, a wonderful photograph of her. And he's, he's using her eyes from that photograph in the exterior um, uh, sculpture. Um, it's being fabricated in Wisconsin, uh, the timeline, the pavers, the inside wall and the outside wall. Uh, and this is the construction as it is now. Uh, this uh, concrete supports are up, and uh, stone will be coming in in a couple of months, and we'll start to fabricate. Um, quickly, Cars Hill, a project that I'm managing. Um, this is, the, of course, the president's house. This is the rotunda for those uh, right across University Avenue. Uh, on the top of Cars Hill. We have the President's House there now, Buckingham Palace, a little uh, outbuilding, uh, the Carriage House, uh, the Guest House, and then Leak Cottage are all part of the Car Cars Hill complex. Um, and it actually has a long history with the university. Uh, Brock and Bro and his wife, they were the clerk of the works for Jefferson. They bought the property, uh, some 40 acres, uh, in, in 19, I'm sorry, 1829, he passed away three years later in 32, and then she started in 1833 a boarding house. The university had started to grow; they ran out of room for students, um, and so she uh, some some of the structures here date from her time in the late uh, 1850s. Um, uh, changed hands, and then Mrs. Dabney Carr purchased the uh, boarding house and property uh, in 57, 58. Um, and then she expanded the uh, complex, uh, and it became known as Cars Hill. Um, 
the Buckingham Palace was a, is an outbuilding up there used as guest quarters. Uh, it was actually uh, uh, designed by William Pratt uh, in 1854, paid for by a student's father who was needed to find a place for his son to live. So he paid for it and built it up there on Cars Hill, um, and we still have it. Uh, you can see here the layout of these, this, this L-shaped buildings. This is a plan from um, the mid-19th century. The guest house here is uh, this two, these two blocks here, these two buildings here. So we have pieces of the boarding house still there. Walls of the carriage house designed by McKinney and White in 1909, but there are walls that were salvaged from um, the uh, original boarding houses still there. Um, in, uh, of course, the university, first president, Alderman, uh, came in 1906, 1905, um, and he needed a house, um, and it was decided to build that on Cars Hill. Uh, they hired McKim Mead and White, Stanford White, uh, the prime architect for it, um, and uh, the aldermans met with Stanford White several times. They, uh, it's, it's believed uh, and has a lot of evidence to show that they used the house they lived in uh, in New Orleans when he was uh, president of Tulane for the, uh, what they wanted, uh, much to White's chagrin. Um, and uh, his meeting with Mrs. Alderman about, uh, uh, was one of the last meetings he had before he was murdered, of course, uh, at the top of Madison Square Garden by his lover's husband. Um, so... Uh, the Cars Hill has several different components to it. The renovation of the house itself, it's never been renovated since its construction in 1909, uh, replacing all the mechanical electrical systems, putting in fire detection, uh, suppression systems, media uh, security. Uh, we have serious structural problems that were constructed into, with the house and then restoring uh, certain features, then replacing the landscape and the hardscape around the building and new utilities for all the, uh, all the outbuildings and Cars Hill. And it certainly needed it. This was how, this is the housekeeping area uh, in the basement where they worked um, just with all kinds of, of, of systems that were added onto piecemeal together over time. This was a structural support brace that we had to put in underneath the, um, the entrance foyer uh, and, and hallway. Um, uh, this says, please jiggle the handle uh, after flushing. Um, don't, turn off, don't turn off the, uh, the electrical light because it affects the Comcast cable. Um, <laughs> wires everywhere. You look out windows onto compressors. Uh, there are five different compressors, five different little uh, uh, area air conditioning systems that were just patched into the house. Um, Plumbing systems from 1909 that had very little pressure anymore because the rust was so bad inside of them. Um, so, oh, oh, thank you, thank you, because I have a lot of these. <laughs> um, so, uh, new utilities coming in. Uh, we had uh, new water lines for the fire suppression system. 
um, bringing in chilled water for the first time so we can have central systems, uh, air conditioning systems, getting rid of all those compressors, replacing sanitary sewer lines in the basement. Um, so this is all the systems going into the building, having to take off uh, uh, wainscot and, and doing, uh, uh, pro not probes, but uh, uh, selective demolition to be able to, to wire and rewire the house and get all our new um, security uh, systems in and sprinkler systems in. Um, the structural problems we had was that originally the house was designed so that all the wood structure of the roof would go to the exterior brick walls. Unfortunately, uh, the university decided to do their own construction administration and ended up building it, allowing the structure to settle on the interior non-load-bearing walls, which then caused such things as um, a good three inches of drop um, from one side to the other of this door. Um, and all, all it took, we, we, we would monitor this. We'd go in and, and take measurements um, uh, once every couple of months uh, just to make sure it still wasn't moving. But all it would take was a, a tremendous snow load to uh, create some failure to these interior wall systems. We devised a system of putting in three steel trusses in the attic to rehang all the existing wood framing off of those trusses and take the loads back to the exterior walls. Um, and these are the trusses. And it's not uh, a very difficult thing to do. There are 100 pieces to each of these trusses. And they had to be fabricated, put together in the attic, brought in one at a time, uh, and they, they sandwiched existing walls so that we can then hide them within uh, uh, furred out walls. Um, and this was an extremely difficult uh, and expensive thing to do, but it preserved the building. Um, and this shows the, the bearing for one of those trusses at the exterior wall. We, in the basement, we went in and, and sistered all of the joists um, and added steel uh, uh, channel flitches to the girders to reinforce them for the kind of assembly loads that happen now. The first floor, is, it's, so much, it's used so much for public events, for, for um, fundraising, for university events. Um, that it's considered an assembly space. Um, and it thus has building code requirements for a much uh, uh, more rigorous structural system. So that's what we did with the basement structure. Some of the few things that we have restored, the original building had a balustrade uh, around the flat upper part of the roof. Uh, here we're putting in the supports for it, and we've restored that balustrade. That balustrade was gone by the end of, by 1950. It, it, uh, like the parapets on the lawn, it, it was the first thing to rot off. Um, we, this is a, the hallway upstairs. In the 1950s, it, was, uh, it originally went much farther back. It was infilled to create a walk-in closet. Uh, we worked with the Ryans and were able to restore that hallway to its original dimensions. And we have yet to finish putting in the plaster uh, ornament for the cornice, but that is coming. Um, another thing is, in the 1950s, the pocket doors that came off the center hallway into each of the main rooms um, were taken out 
and then put in the attic of the carriage house and left there, um, and then narrowed and with just single leaf doors. Uh, and we're sure it's because the pocket doors, like all pocket doors, came off the tracks. Um, so we have pulled them out of the attic. We opened up all those to the original openings, all those openings. And now you see the first set of pocket doors in place. Um, and they're beautiful. We hardly had to do anything to them. And this leaded uh, pattern is on book ca or, uh, cases um, that were used to be in the dining room. And when we got the building, they were up on the third floor. Um, so we're putting them back to the dining room and stripping the paint off to the uh, mahogany that they were originally. So it had a very, even though it's a four-square house with colonial revival details, it had a very craftsman feel with the amount of exposed uh, woodwork uh, that was in it. Uh, Landscape-wise, the house is, is here. We're creating uh, event lawns for the many different um, uh, activities go on. Uh, some of you probably remember the tent that was put up every year. And this was the tent pad that was put on in the 70s, I think. Um, and then, the, the, and then a, a pad next to the uh, dining room window, that terrace was put in at the same time. A tent was put up three times a year. Um, and so, but it was very poorly uh, uh, designed and incorporated with the site. So we're creating uh, two different event areas. We're creating a family lawn here. Um, and we, are we have taken away that pad, that, that terrace pad, and we're going to be and putting back an east terrace that's very similar to the original terrace that used to be there and designed by McKimmean White. Here's a rendering of it. This is the east lawn, event lawn. There'll be a northeast one. Um, and this is what it, it looks like um, uh, looked like when we began. Um, and so this is the these were taken just recently. Uh, the east lawn, the the very shallow retaining walls that are going to create a nice flat space for events uh, are going in, uh, being bricked. Um, and there will be there's this uh, several risers to the east terrace. Um, the roofing, uh, we had to replace all the slate roofing um, and all the built-in gutters were replaced um, and chimneys repointed, uh, chimney caps put on, all the woodwork stripped of paint, uh, repairs made to the damage uh, and then um, uh, re uh, restored. All the exterior uh, wood, painted wood material was stripped of the paint. And when we got scaffolding up, we're finding, because of those built-in gutters that were leaking, you know, full, large areas of the cornice that were just collapsing uh, because of the rot inside of them. Um, and we found more of that, of course, when we stripped the paint from there. Um, and we have stripped the paint from the original, or from the entrance, main entrance from the south portico. Uh, this is what it looked like when we were in, during that process. Um, the East Terrace used to look like this. This is during the excavation when we took it out. And we have taken advantage of putting this East Terrace back by creating more mechanical space. We created the vault underneath of it, and now we got this big honking air handling unit that's in here. Uh, and it's huge. <laughs> um, and so, and, and, but there'll, there'll be a cast concrete balustrade going back that's uh, exactly matching the original. 
Um, and interior, stripping the paint from the main public areas uh, to, again, recover the very detailed ornamentation uh, on that woodwork. Uh, a tedious process that uh, really is, is paying off. And this is the, uh, the Ryan's uh, maybe a month ago as uh, uh, our interior designer was uh, uh, working out different colors for the rooms going from one to another. Um, and uh, so we were, uh, uh, hope to be, well, we will be finished uh, next, late next fall, early winter. Uh, right now, they're planning to move in probably over the holidays uh, next uh, winter um, and be there for the start of spring uh, semester. Um, and just to prove we don't do just uh, glamorous projects, this is down in Giles County. Um, and it's a fantastic place if you don't know about it. It's, it's a biological station that the university uh, constructed in the 1930s uh, on land given to it um, for the study of biology. Um, and they did it in a very uh, uh, UVA lawn way with a stone uh, building at the head of it. It's a uh, classroom uh, auditorium uh, building, an open area. Uh, and then these rustic cabins scattered along the sides of it. And these cabins are really fantastic. 1930s, wonderful construction. Uh, well, wonderful detailing. Uh, poor construction. <laughs> uh, they cre they, we had this problem where they did these one fantastic masonry chimney stacks, uh, but they put it on stone rubble that was just laid on the ground. And we had to figure a way of how do we stabilize these chimney stacks without destroying the, the historic fabric. Devised a system of taking out some of the floor around it, excavating down, forming up, and creating a pad, a 10 foot by 10 foot concrete pad that kind of floats because the area is a low area with very high water table. Um, and so it's, you go down a few inches and it's mud and water. Um, so this, it's floating on top of that, uh, that mud and, um, and, and turned out wonderfully. Uh, and so we've done one as a test. You can see here how the chimney has sunk and the hearth has, stepped, has, has tilted up about three inches. Um, and that's it for my presentation. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be lucky to get one. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, at the launch, you said that the uh, wonderful work you guys did on the rotunda was recognized as being one of the nine best in the world. I missed who was the person or group that gave you that honor. The American Institute of Architects. Yes, ma'am. Installed it. We have a redundant roof system, so we, we preserved the serrated roof, and then we put across it new framing, plywood, and then an EPDM single-ply membrane roof. Uh, then sleepers on top of that, and then EPE decking with gaps in between it, so that the uh, uh, EPDM, the single-ply the, the, uh, single membrane roof system, that, cap, that catches the water and takes it to the gutters. And we're able to preserve all the Jeffersonian uh, uh, serrated roofs underneath of it. Yes, ma'am. Is there any chance of us ever 
That, that's an issue. Um, because the building official has not allowed that to happen to the first section we did between seven and nine because there was not two means of egress from, from that flat roof area. Um, we're hoping to, as we do more of them, there will be more opportunities to be able to, in an emergency egress, to be able to find a way off of them um, or an emergency situation. So we're working with them, and as we finish up the entire West Lawn Row, um, we hope to come up with a, a negotiated way of allowing people up there. But right now, I, I mean, I take people up to Pavilion 7 and go out there all the time. Um, and take groups out there, too, so don't tell. Yes? Hey, Saint. How was the... Oh, are you talking about the anatomical theater? No. Brooks Hall? Oh, Oh, that's a, that's a history. So you'll notice the, the the two buildings that have the most different, distinctive architecture are the chapel and Brooks Hall. Well, they were constructed Brooks Hall, eighteen seventy six. Uh, the chapel, eighteen early eighteen nineties, eighteen eighties, before the fire of eighteen ninety five. And you have to remember that where they were placed was the back yard of the uh, Academical Village. That was the rear. The portico facing University Avenue was not there. Um, those wings facing University Avenue were not there. Jefferson, that, that was a hillside that Jefferson planted in Scotch Broom to keep people from coming from University Avenue to the Rotunda from that direction. He made everybody go down to the south end of the lawn and approached the rotunda up the lawn. Um, so when they had these strange architectural buildings, uh, it was natural for them to put them in the, the, the back to hide them. It just unintended consequences. After the fire of 1895, the Board of Visitors said, we've got to, we've got to address University Avenue. That's, that's where everybody is. It's, and so they put, they instructed McKinney and White to put the North Portico on and the steps and the North Terrace. And then all of a sudden, Brooks Hall and the chapel are features. <laughs> so it, it was inadvertent. I want to thank you for all your work you've done. Let me ask you about one of the great, great questions I have. What happens if you ever fire again, a fire here? Have you got good fire suppression? Oh, yes. So... Uh, as an example, I mean, we put uh, complete fire suppression in the Rotundo. We, whenever we renovate a pavilion, we put fire suppression now into pavilions. Um, the student rooms, you might remember a few years ago, we uh, uh, told the students they couldn't have fires for a while. What happened is we got into those attics, and we, start, we started seeing cracks in the chimneys in the attics um, where creosote was coming out and, and depositing on the face of the brick, which meant those chimneys were leaking um, hot air. And these are wood attics that connect five to seven dorm rooms and a fire getting up there and starting going down the dorm. I mean, it was a disaster waiting to happen. So we shut down the, the fireplaces and, the, of course, the... The resulting outcry meant that money was found to <laughs> fix that situation. 
Uh, we relined all the fireplaces with stainless steel liners, but we also put in the fire suppression system in the attics of all the, the rooms and in the rooms themselves. If you go into a room now, if you look directly above your head when you go in, you'll see a sprinkler head uh, right there. So all that's been protected as best as we can. And they're also in the crawl spaces and, and basements. Great presentation. Um, any chance your slides would be available online or can be put online so that we can go back and look at them? I'll be glad to if uh, Althea agrees to it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Jody, have you found any evidence of habitation on the university property that's older than the university? Um, yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, when uh, the, the cemetery project we, there, there was a project to add to the cemetery, and that's when we discovered the 57 unmarked um, uh, enslaved laborers and black graves. Um, so as part of the, we had to then move the extension to the cemetery to the uh, south side, and when we did that, discovered some Indian remains, um, prehistoric Indian artifacts um, that... Uh, Three Chop Road apparently used to follow McCormick and then went um, along Alderman up to uh, where it then connects back to what is now Ivy Road. So it had a little bit different route, and that was along the road, and they found prehistoric Indian artifacts there. Um, and then, uh, of course, the Jefferson buildings are not the only, oldest buildings in the Academical Village. Um, Monroe uh, Law Office is uh, what we call Monroe Law Office. But that little tiny building at the intersection of the two rows on, on Monroe, uh, Monroe Hall uh, hillside, um, that office dates to about 1790. Um, and it's really fascinating to go inside in the crawl space and see the earlier construction um, in that building. Thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for your interest in the historic preservation. And please fill up the feedback cards and have a wonderful week.